0: Keep your curtains closed at night. Bring your children in before dark. Keep your kitchen clean and food covered. Don't answer the door when there's a knock unless you know someone is really there. Don't yell, come in, when you hear a knock at the door or if it blows open. Don't eat when passing a grave at night. Death is around, so be careful. And of course, don't whistle at night and never whistle back. Our elders taught us these things to keep us safe from evil and unwanted spirits. Said the stupid, you look like you could use a friend And stupid says, that's great, I ain't never had me one of them Then stupid said the evil, how does this friendship work? And evil says, it's easy, just stick your head down in the dirt So stupid dug a hole and stuck his head down in the sand And evil had free reign to carry out his will Reverend John Stewart was a family man with a deep faith in God, and in the year 1770, after being ordained a priesthood from Deacon, he was assigned as a missionary to the Mohawks at Fort Hunter, New York. Being a former school teacher, he helped to establish a schoolhouse at nearby Johnstown, where he would also conduct monthly services. He also ministered to the Mohawks at kenanjo Harry, where he would meet the man who would become one of his closest friends, confidants, and allies, Joseph Brandt. In just five years' time, the American Revolutionary War would begin, and tests of faith and loyalty would commence, which set off a chain of events with outcomes rippling throughout history. Reverend Stewart was a man who believed in the importance of family and the true meaning of the Bible. It was a time of revolution in the Thirteen Colonies, so he felt compelled to put as much good into the world as possible. A year passed, and Stewart continued taking his family to prayers in both Johnstown and Kennedy where Joseph Bram became a widower and fell into a deep depression. Seeing the state of Joseph, Stuart approached him in an effort to console and help guide him through his grief period. Being a family man, he couldn't fathom the thought of losing a loved one. He himself had eight children with his wife Jane O'Kill. At this time during the 1700s, all of the scriptures and hymns were written only in European languages. To take Joseph's mind off his losses, he requested assistance in translating St. Mark's Gospel into the Mohawk language. The two would sit regularly and translate the works over family dinner and cups of wine. Their work came to a halt in 1774 when the American Revolution turned into all-out war. Reverend John Stewart was forced to choose between his faith and his homestead. American patriots would loot his home, destroy his property, And desecrate his church, making it unsafe for him and his family. Upon being nearly arrested, Joseph Brandt arrived and took him and his family to safety. As the Patriot forces started closing in, the British called upon their allies to fight alongside them. It was at this time that a secretive fraternal organization began to make underhanded moves which included some members such as the late Sir William Johnson, the brother-in-law of Joseph Brandt. At the homestead of Johnson, Joseph and Stewart were brought into the Freemason group with the promise of ultimate safety and power over any and all situations. It would put them into rooms with the likes of George Washington, who Brant would later describe as the village burner. With this newfound membership, Reverend Stewart began to see some of the things he had only heard rumor about while attending seminary school in Pennsylvania. Many of the practices included standard religious rituals in which he was familiar and comfortable with. Many others were dark and made him uneasy, making him question the faith of those who introduced him to the Freemasonry. Although these practices seemed to be mostly for protection against the Patriots, Stuart would soon realize the terror that followed these rituals. The Reverend was well aware of different types of witches within the colonies. There were even some referred to as Granny Witches for their caring nature and ability to heal and knowledge of herbs, medicines, and prayers. These practitioners had been in the area since the early 1600s when indigenous people and settlers started to combine their medicines and rituals. There were also other witch doctors and evil witches with more sinister practices. Some of these practices included a small bone arrow which they would shoot at an image named after the person they wished to injure. Whatever they wished to throw into a person, such as wool, sewing needles, or coal, would be tricked to the end of an arrow and shot at the image. Even Joseph Brandt himself, although a religious man, was hell-bent on the existence of otherworldly evils and supernatural powers. His son would even later become a victim of witchcraft. Brandt claimed the rituals had been performed since ancient times, that the Mohawks and other tribes used these ceremonies to ward off evil spirits and energy. They had also been used to cause sickness and decay when used in a certain fashion, usually with the use of a blood sacrifice. While war waged on, those loyal to the British crown were taken north to Johnson Hall, the home of Sir William Johnson and Molly Brant. From there, Molly would assist the Loyalists in migrating to present-day Quebec and other northern territories until Sir William Johnson passed away in 1774. She then moved back to Kennejoheri and began to fully assert herself as a matriarch without the strictness and fraternal watch of the First Baronet of New York. Sir William Johnson after threat of arrest, Joseph Brant led John Stewart and his family to safety in what is now Lachine, Quebec, outside of Ganawagi. Molly followed her brother north in 1776, just before the end of the Revolutionary War. They continued on to Fort Frontenac, a former Patriot base used as defense against the Haudenosaunee and British, which was captured in 1758. The Mohawks then moved onward to their original hunting and fishing grounds where some French and Mohawk people had already begun to settle. The territories of Six Nations and Tyndinaga would be established, and Stewart would continue his monthly services among the indigenous people who lived there. On a cold Cataraqua winter night in 1785, Reverend Stewart had just finished reading scripture to his family. He recently had a falling out with Joseph Brandt about the division of land, as he believed the loyalists should be able to settle wherever they deemed reasonable within the corridor between Toronto and Kingston. To take his mind off his troubles, he turned on his phonograph, playing some comforting loyalist music which reminded him of his home in New York. As he sank deep into his chair with his favourite Bible passage in hand, his gut sank, giving him a nauseous feeling for a moment. Someone began to bang at his door. Startled, he moved swiftly to find Molly Brandt at the door in visible distress. Her eyes held a clear terror behind them as she tried her best to keep herself together. Although it was a calm and clear night, there seemed to be a mist that followed her and wouldn't sway with the slightest breeze. Stuart ignored what seemed to be two omens in a row and tried to rush her in out of the cold to explain her anguish. With no time to stay and warm up, they immediately set out on their journey. Stewart informed his wife Jane that there was an emergency with the Mohawks, and he left with urgency. He considered himself in debt to them for saving the lives of him and his family during the Revolutionary War. On the carriage ride from Cataraqui to St. George's Church in Tyndanaga, Molly explained strange occurrences that had been happening since its construction had begun, including unexplained fires. In recent days, children had gone missing or come back with stories that one would believe outlandish and childish excuses for playing late had they not already believed in the presence of evil and sorcery. Recently, there had been murder and other sicknesses afflicting the Mohawks at Tyendinaga. Stewart added that there had been a shroud over his home in recent days which made him feel uneasy, compelling him to work later within the walls of the Kingston Church at night. As they proceeded... Stewart questioned Molly as to why the rector at Guntege, known to loyalists as Tyendinaga, was unable to help. She explained to the reverend that it was because of the trust that they held for him and his loyalty for the Mohawks through the American Revolution. He had been asked for, specifically. The carriage shook rapidly and the night grew darker as they approached the Mohawk village. The once crystal clear night, save for the mist following Molly, was becoming cast over with a blanket of ominous clouds, And the moon dimmed as they arrived at the wooden St. George's Church. There, Molly said there was a healer waiting for him in the house behind. As Reverend Stewart and Molly Brandt exited the carriage, a chill ran down his spine in the same way as when he overheard talk of dark rituals when he was a young deacon. He then began to reminisce unwittingly about the dark practices that Joseph had mentioned. Then the sinking feeling he had while sitting in his home before departing for the godforsaken journey in the darkness had returned. The thin winter air felt heavy and thick upon his shoulders, with a faint stench that he could not quite identify. As he approached the house behind the church, he could see the local healer sitting inside by the fireplace, shaking from what appeared to be more than just the cold. As a zealous missionary, Stewart could not understand why this medicine man would want to speak to him, especially because in the past they had not seen eye to eye, and Stewart had referred to him as a heathen who would not accept the absolute truth. At this point he knew there was something terribly wrong for Molly Brandt to bring them together at such haste and in secret. He felt eyes upon him, as if even the slightest movement was being watched and assessed, as if he were being stalked like prey. Through the calmness of the night he could hear the snapping of branches and twigs following close by as he walked, which he amounted to ice on the branches weighing them down. Yet the chill down his spine remained as he proceeded. Upon entering the house, there was a strong smell of sage, sweet grass, and sacred tobacco. The thickness of the winter night faded as they passed the threshold, and the atmosphere turned to more unsettling, as if the medicines were trying to protect from something sinister lurking outside. When they gathered by the fire, they all heard a low growl outside the window. Then a set of footsteps, with talon-like sounds, began up one wall and over the roof, before going down the next wall and stopping outside the window on the opposite side of the house. This prompted the healer to hurry in explaining why he wanted to meet with Stuart. The medicine man had been trying to warn people about walking in both canoes or playing both sides. They needed to stick to their traditional roots and reject the teachings of the Bible so that the balance could be maintained in the world. He explained that he did not hate Stuart. the fact that he was trying to change the minds of the people and employed Joseph Brandt to carry out that business. He saw the building of St. George's Church on traditional hunting and fishing grounds as a religious attack, a betrayal after the Mohawks had saved countless lives. The medicine man explained that he tried using the scripture of the King James Bible to try driving the church away with the idea of using their own religion against them. Through advice from some jugglers in Tyendinaga, he was sent to a covenant in where rituals took place and animals were sacrificed to call on spirits. With rumors of witchcraft happening in the Grove as well, which is where St. George's Church was located, people began to get uneasy. There had been a sighting of what someone thought was a Wendigo, but it turned out just to be a shapeshifter, one of the natural people that connect with the Earth and nature through a physical change. He was spotted transitioning into his animal form and mistaken for the creature that may have been responsible for stealing the children. Weeks later, the body of a bear was found, but had strange taggings. It was as if the skin underneath was tattooed with the same markings as the shapeshifter would have had in his human form. Molly then explained that they believed that was the end of it. With the apparent wendigo, which was actually the shapeshifter, gone, things had started to gain normalcy for the following few days, before the bare body was found. The medicine men then discovered that there was a group of jugglers in the area trying to do the same thing he was, and had learned from the lead witch at the coven he had been directed to in Belleville. When he joined, there was no way he could leave with his life. The coven had seven children prepared one for each of the members to sacrifice. The rituals began in the barn across the trail from the house, behind the church. The healer described a makeshift altar that could be taken down after each use. It had small bones, a gold-hilted dagger, and a large book which he assumed was either a bible or book of shadows. Beside were different sized bowls, larger ones empty and smaller ones containing herbs, both soaked and dried. The initial part of the ritual involved dressing the children in white sleeveless unhooded gowns that reached down to their feet their fabrics were new but appeared worn as if these children could have been the ones who had gone missing when the head juggler began the incantations others began binding the hands of the children behind their backs the soaking herbs were then taken around and the hair of each child was then washed and drained over the dry herbs the hair of each children was then cut with the golden hilted dagger, and placed in the large wooden bowls. Their bound hands were then strung together, and they were led to a secondary and final location to finish the ritual. The head juggler, along with the handful of witches and the medicine man, led the children behind the barn where there was a set of seven stones placed in a circle. The medicine man placed the large bowls in the middle, and others placed the herbs on the stones around. The male juggler stepped into the center and began an incantation which immediately brought on a chill so cold that it began difficult to breathe. Each one of the children stood facing one of the hooded witches, except for the first one in line. The child was instructed to kneel over the empty bowl and close his eyes. The head witch then raised the blade and called out the name of the demon he intended to summon. As the medicine man watched silently in horror and disbelief, the child's mouth was then gagged and his eyes blindfolded. The dagger was held over a flame as the witch spoke, and held the head of the child. When he was finished speaking, he looked at the child and slit his throat. Blood began rushing from the child, and the bowl under him filled. The witches in the circle continued the incantations as each child met their fate one by one. Each bowl was filled to the top with the blood of innocent children, and their hair mixed into it. As each bowl was filled and the child expired, they removed the bodies and buried them in the woods, except for the last one. The medicine man said the witches insisted it needed to be burned. Before they burned the final body, they began to fashion seven dolls from the bloodied hair of the children to represent the seven gates of hell. They believed that if they had an innocent soul to control each one, they would be able to ultimately control the single demon they summoned. As the ashes of the last child being cremated floated into the air, a sudden breeze blasted over them as if large wings had just lifted off like a bird about to fly. This, to them, signified the arrival of the demon and the binding of souls to watch over the gates. A growling sound combined with a screech surrounded them as the heart of the fire turned blood red and the white hot flame turned purple. This was the event that some of the demon will only refer to as M. Although the healer did not participate in the ritual killings, he did use the incantations and scriptures that had been translated into Mohawk. The guilt plagued him so much, he was compelled to come forward to Molly about the ordeal. The fears of Reverend John Stewart had come true. There really was hell on earth, and he needed to do anything possible to stop it. It would damage the reputation of the church if people were to find out that these heathens were able to summon the divine, regardless if it is good or evil. The only ones to stand between the spiritual and the physical could be the chosen ones of God who preached and spread the word of the Bible, not these witches. Stuart was furious as he stood at the front of the house, pacing with his Bible in hand, trying to comprehend what he had just heard. What he had overheard all those years ago was true, and he had only narrowly escaped being drawn into these practices himself after what he had seen. He could recall different bowls, the same description locked away at Johnson Hall, along with the same types of herbs and medicines used in the ritual the medicine man had informed him about. He also remembered bits and pieces of conversations and stories Joseph would pass on about different rituals his former brother-in-law, Sir William Johnson, had participated in before his passing in 1774. After his bewilderment and frustration subsided, Stuart began giving directions immediately calling for an altar to be built one meter in from the trail that led up to the construction site of the stone church. As they planned further, the growling outside of the house became louder and the stench barreled down the chimney, pushing soot into the room. A face then appeared in the fireplace with a long pointed chin. Behind it were tattered wings that were moving in a different way than the fire flickered. A deep sinister laugh erupted and Molly threw a mixture of medicine into the fire, pushing that demonic face back outside through the chimney. Stuart and the healer wrapped themselves in their respective protections, one with a cross and Bible, the other with words and medicines. They approached the altar site and began construction. It was then when the stench Stuart had previously smelled began to become more and more clear. It was the smell of rotting flesh. This, he knew, was a sure sign of demonic presence. As they constructed their altar, it seemed as though the small stones became heavy after they lifted them, and they would have trouble balancing the stones that needed to be stacked. It was as if there was something trying to deliberately stop them from building the altar, although they finished it in good time under the circumstances. Upon completion, they could hear the branches breaking again as they did when the Reverend had arrived earlier that night. They quickly began their ritual. As they proceeded, Stuart instructed the healer to use the same book that he did before because it would be more effective in getting rid of the demon. Needing to put differences aside for the sake of time and the community, the healer obliged. The presence began to contain itself to the area and was bound between two trees beside a small hill in what is now the cemetery behind present-day christ church they disassembled their altar and scattered it in the woods later returning to the house near the chapel the two became furious with each other and argued into the morning that they had only bound it to the grounds and not banished it back to hell each blaming the lack of strength in the medicine of the other and raged that it could still affect generations to come Sunday prayer was the next day, and to seem inconspicuous, Reverend Stewart disguised his presence as a personal Christmas visit for a special sermon, though it was still over a week away. The people gathered in the small wooden St. George's church, just 500 meters from where they had arrived permanently on the shores, their traditional hunting and fishing grounds one year prior. The Reverend took his position at the head of the church and began to speak about the Bible being the absolute truth and all who followed would be saved from their heathen ways. The healer then burst in with a final warning that we needed to stay true to our own ways or great evils could befall the people. The reverend raised his Bible and pointed at the healer, calling the heathen, banishing him from the church with accusations of witchcraft and ignoring the absolute truth, the word of God. He then laid blame solely on the medicine man for all the evil and bad luck the community was having, stopping short of accusing him of child sacrifice and revealing the covens. This was something that Stuart would never compel himself to do, because among the names of those in the coven were some of those he was in the fraternal order with. Betrayed, the healer took to the woods where he set up a small camp for himself with the intention of personally watching over the area where the demon was bound. The next day he was discovered frozen to death. To protect himself from any accusations of wrongdoing or for being the cause of the healer's death, Stuart went back to the garrison in Cataraqui but a rotting stench followed that only he could smell. The Reverend continued his missionary work, but only monthly visitations at Tyndinaga, nothing more. Each time he returned, he would see the soul of the medicine man and the shapeshifter watching him and trying to speak to him. Stuart refused to listen, and when he passed away in 1811, his soul was bound with both men and the demon. There are local stories about the bodies of children still buried in the woods, and documentation of alleged witchcraft in the area. The souls of these people could still be bound there, and it would be up to the Anglican Church to exercise their demon.